Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with 10th year MMT activist Andy Berkeley. Andy has a PhD in marine sedimentology and is a marine scientist and oceanographer by trade. He's also the co-author of the 2020 paper, An Accounting Model of the UK Exchequer, which is published by the Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. This is part one of a two-part episode but it's also part two of a larger seven-part series with all three co-authors, first individually and on a personal level, and then ending with a joint interview with all three where we discuss the paper in depth. In today's episode, Andy and I discuss some decidedly non-economic topics. For the first half of part one, we talk about the now half-century-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Since the 1970s, the UN General Assembly has regularly and overwhelmingly voted to affirm the fact that Israel is illegally occupying Palestine. This, in addition to the fact that Israel is clearly the stronger party by orders of magnitude, calls into question the popular notion and official narrative that Israel is nothing more than a passive and long-suffering, dainty little flower of a victim. On the other side of this narrative is Palestine, serving the role of the melodramatic supervillain seemingly doing nothing but perpetually alternating between launching missiles at Israel and twirling their overly long mustache. I'm a Jew, but not religious. I grew up in a family, however, that subscribed strongly to exactly these ideas, that Israel is 100% the victim and Palestine 100% the bad guy. Questioning Israel and its leaders in any way is essentially treated by some as an act of betrayal. My speculation is that Israel is seen by many Jews as the only home on earth for the Jewish people. This is such a powerful thing that it justifies excusing the behavior of the Israeli leadership and ignoring the suffering caused in service of preserving that home. In any relationship, the idea that one party is 100% in the right and the other 100% in the wrong is the stuff of cartoons, not reality. Further, the assertion that the by far stronger party is the victim, when that so-called victim has been occupying the territory of its so-called aggressor for 50 years, is a highly suspect one in my view. In the second half of part one, Andy and I greatly lightened the mood with another non-economic topic, this time music. I'm a classically trained singer and for the past six months I've been learning guitar. Andy has played piano and bass guitar for most of his life, and we have a fun and kind of exciting conversation about lots of varied topics. How to sight read and learning about music theory, how we were trained, the styles in which we were trained versus those we choose to listen to, the many YouTube teachers who have influenced us, and more. You'll find a few samples of our playing in today's episode, and we both thank you for being forgiving and understanding 
while listening. At the very beginning of today's episode, you heard a brief sample of Andy's piano and bass playing. You'll find the entire piece along with another after the end of today's closing music. You'll also find links to several musicians and songs we mention in the show notes. Next week in part two, Andy describes his life before knowing about MMT and how he discovered it from an actual stranger on a train. Someone he now knows well, Chris Cook, overheard Andy's conversation and interrupted and interjected the fateful words, banks don't lend deposits and governments don't spend taxes. But that's next week. For now, here's part one of my conversation with Andy Berkeley. Enjoy. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, You'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activistmmt. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Now, on to our conversation. My 11-year-old is, is Andrew. <laughs> I'm interviewing someone named Andrew right now. This guy's named Andrew. He's in England. So, Where, where about you, then, Jeff? I live in uh, New Jersey, uh, right New across Jersey. from Philadelphia. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So two hours cool. south of, of New York, right across yeah. from Philly. Cool. Um, all right, 90 minutes. Go. Hey, okay. Uh, so... So what's going on? So so uh Yeah, well not not much is going on over here. <laughs> with uh with the the, the pandemic and, and, and stuff. Yeah, not much you're, is happening. You're still you're still well locked down? Well, it's uh, yeah, it, it, I'm in Scotland, uh, which has slightly different rules oh, you're to in the Scotland. rest of Oh, I Yeah. Oh, okay. Which has slightly different rules to the rest of uh, the the United Kingdom and yeah, a few a few things have been delayed in terms of opening up a little bit, so it's gradually gradually opening up, but it's um yeah, it, it it means that you know not much is happening really in terms of uh, you know going about our lives and doing fun stuff. Not not too many uh, uh, ha- not too many cases though. It's not it's not too well, out of control. Well, the cases have been increasing. I think as as the uh, as certain things have been opening up, you know, cafes and pubs and uh, things have been opening up. The cases are increasing, but um, as far as I, as far as I understand sort of a hospital cases aren't necessarily increasing which is i suppose that's what you'd expect if because you know there's a lot of people vaccinated now so hopefully the the infections are increasing and you know the the people that are actually suffering or or, or taking it in a bad way isn't necessarily becoming uh much of a problem hopefully hopefully that's the way it's going uh right yeah i I just saw a map i just saw a map yesterday of like just how I don't know what the term is, how I guess racist or whatever yeah. or nationalist like the vaccines are that it's like all in the developed countries and there's hardly any in, in you know, in the, in the less developed countries. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
and I think I think I think our country is. I mean, the country are getting a lot. Of, the the government are getting a lot of credit for sort of ruling out the vaccine effectively, which is yeah is good on the one hand. But I, th- I think the I think the government have really really prioritised it because they know they've done so badly in every other feature of the pandemic. Um, mm, and it's, really? it's yeah yeah I, th- I think so yeah. Um, so, so, so the the government have really tried to prioritise the 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 vaccine, and um, they certainly got in early with procuring a lot of the vaccine. I think, and that um, rubbed a lot of people in in Europe up the wrong way. Hmm. But yeah, but you're right in the sense that yeah, we're a rich country. We've managed to get our hands on the vaccine before a lot of other countries, and that's great for us. But it's not exactly egalitarian, is it? Yeah, I, I mean, and but it's it's also it's like. You know, like it, you're, it, this reminds me of a, I got a letter from um, we got a letter from my my kid's school district early on in the pandemic, like when the numbers were really getting high. And uh, the superintendent said, we will get through this pandemic as a district like we always get through everything or something like that. I'm right. like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you don't get through a global pandemic as a school district. <laughs> That's not how it works, you know. <laughs> and it's like, you know, uh, we we get the vaccines, but it's. If everybody else doesn't get the vaccines, the numbers are going up in India or whatever. It's like you, you yeah. know, you can only hold that off for so long. But it's crazy. Yep. Um. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, Andy, uh, thank you so much for coming on and talk with talking with me again. Um, really glad to talk to you. I usually uh, do my first question of please introduce yourself and say what your thinking and life and thinking was before MMT. I want to do a little bit different with you. We'll, we're going to do that, but I want to do um, a couple of uh, unusual topics uh, after viewing your Twitter timeline. I'd like to do a couple non-economic topics. Um, okay. Can you just uh, introduce yourself and then, and then we'll get into a couple of those topics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My name's Andrew Barkley. I'm from uh, the north of England in the United Kingdom. Um, I currently live in Scotland, um, and well, I'm a marine scientist, oceanographer by trade. But I guess the reason why I'm I'm speaking to you, Jeff, is because I've become interested in in economics and um, economics from a from an MMT perspective. I thought you were actually something with. Com- I was actually in my head. I thought you were something with computers. Computer. Um, well, I mean, I do a lot of coding. Uh, yeah, I do, I, I do a lot of coding because you know I suppose in my in my job in my well my my, my career more generally I've had to do a lot of sort of data analysis um, and things like that. So I'm coding every day to try and um, analyze data, visualize data, solve problems, mathematical type things. Um, so in that sense, I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's the um, the sense you, you you're talking about in terms of computing, but. Um, I'm I'm not in sort of software development or or anything like that. Okay, but data analysis for marine biology. Yeah, well, oceanography and oceanography, ocean, oceanography, ocean engineering, offshore engineering, that sort of thing. What what uh, kind of examples of uh, data or the bigger picture of that kind of stuff that you analyze? Well, it's uh, op, like offshore offshore engineering. So uh, I guess the thing that I do to these days. Uh, in my current job is understanding, well, I suppose what you call the ocean climate in a particular location for engineering purposes. So how fast are the currents, how big are the waves, 
how fast are the winds and um things like you know what might be the what might be the biggest wind gust or the biggest wave height that might be experienced in a particular location in the next 50 years you know and therefore that Whoa. that 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 helps to inform engineering decisions uh yeah so that that sort of thing okay okay so you're i saw your title being a doctor yeah, well, Maria. Let me say it again. What is your yeah. doctorate? <laughs> my, so I'd, I'd say my PhD was in, you could give it a bunch of different uh, descriptions, but marine sedimentology. So uh, my PhD was looking at um, sort of uh, sedimentary records of sea level change. So, mm. you know, how, how do you understand historical sea level changes, historical sea level variations? Well, one way is to, is to, um, one way is to look at marine sediments from the coast and look at how they've changed, you know, as you, as you go deeper and deeper and deeper and look at what's in those sediments. And in particular, what I was doing was looking at um, like micro fossils. So, my, mm. so, so little, little, little animals that create shells that, that, you know, that appear, die, and then leave, leave shells behind in the fossil record. And then you can use those to, to predict, um, sea level change over time mm. and so the, the, i mean the particular reason for doing that is that you know we have very very recent very precise records of sea level change from you know tide gauges instruments that we have around the world but they, they only go back about 100 years uh so you need you need a you need a record of sea level change that um that can be kind of reasonably accurate over centuries to understand the long-term trends you know because you, obviously you, you you hear in the debates around climate change what is anthropogenic and what's just natural and if, if you want to if you want to understand what the anthropogenic effect is you have to be able to discount the natural variations and you have to be able to therefore understand the the variations in sea level that have occurred on kind of decadal and century type time scales over the last maybe thousand years or a couple of thousand years in order to put the place, the existing very, very good data, you know, from, from instruments in, into context. Mm. Uh, hope that all makes sense. Um, so, no, I mean, it's, it's very yeah. interesting. It's very different. I mean, you know, certainly obviously not expected. Um, yeah. um, okay. Uh, well, I was browsing your uh, Twitter timeline and I saw two subjects that um, are you know, pretty much have nothing to do with economics or, you know, very little to do with economics. And I, I wanted to uh, bring them up before we get into economics, if that's okay. And mm -hmm. uh, one of them is kind of heavy. One, Well, not kind of, one of them is heavy. Uh, so yeah. I'll start off with that and then we'll lighten it up with uh, with uh, another one, which is music. Um, mm -hmm. So the first one is you, you have a lot of tweets, a lot of seemingly strong opinions and and you have you know kind of data to back it up or not data is the wrong word but in, uh, sources to back it up of the israeli-palestine conflict and okay. the yeah. the reason that i the reason that i'm interested in this is because i'm pretty ignorant about the subject i'm 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 jewish i'm not very religious but i'm jewish but i have family members that are very religious and they are of the under they are of the belief that Israel's the good guy, the, the 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 victim, and Palestine is the bad guy. And I, I particularly there's one cart one political cartoon that kind of really irks me, where it shows, you know, from Palestine to Israel, like just missile after missile after missile after missile, mm -hmm. and then one missile at the end going back from Israel to Palestine, to quote defend themselves. And this is the depiction of, you know, Israel's the victim and Palestine is the bad guy. And it, this there's just something wrong about that. 
And mm-hmm. I grew up with the idea that, you know, criticizing Israel is basically, you know, betrayal to your religion and same with even Netanyahu. Netanyahu. And you have a lot of uh, interesting tweets about this subject. And I okay, just wanted to get your your thoughts about the topic, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose, um, you know, I, I also would... I would say that I'm ignorant of something. You know, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't exactly claim to be an expert. You know, I'm not from the region, uh, and obviously my experience of the region is therefore nil. You know, so I would. I would hesitate to say to say that my opinions are necessarily um, valid or any more. You know, than lots of other people. But I think the the tweets that I've done recently. Uh, I, I think. I think they're motivated by the fact that it it is. It does seem to be quite an important issue. In British politics, um, it certainly gets a lot of people uh, kind of quite excited, but and, and I'm included in that. And, and I think the reason the reason why I think it's important to have an opinion on it is because uh, I think the UK has some responsibility for the situation because it does lend um, support to Israel, if only in a in a diplomatic way. You know, uh, most politicians in the UK will make statements such as, you know, Israel's only defending itself, Israel has the right to defend itself, and that the Palestinians, you know, Hamas are terrorists and that sort of thing. Um, and to me, there seems to be, it seems to be an example of quite a, you know, an example of hypocrisy, really, in the sense that, you know, it, it, it's a situation where it, it seems very uncontroversial to me that the Palestinian, Palestinians are the oppressed and Israel is the aggressor in this situation. I mean, how can you view a 50-year occupation with continued land theft as anything other than that? Um, yet, the, the most politicians in this country and the media will always start from the Hamas rockets and, and hardly ever mention the fact, the, 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 the very, very important context of a, of a 50-year occupation, which seems absolutely absurd to me. Um, uh, so... In that sense, I feel as if um, you know the UK has some responsibility for this because it, it lends, you know, sort of sort of uh, diplomatic and rhetorical support at the very least. I mean, you could go into all sorts of other types of support, financial support, military support. I don't know the details in those those types of things, so so I, I wouldn't want to wouldn't wouldn't want to talk about it. But at the very least, there's an enormous amount of sort of diplomatic and rhetorical support for Israel, despite the fact that Israel, to me, it seems, are uncontroversially and unequivocally the aggressor so that's why it, that's why it's um interesting and i suppose important to me um and it seems to be at, it seems to be one occasion where um, you know the, the discourse in 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 my country is is completely flipped on its head in in this in in terms of in terms of what's right and wrong you know like you know just for example you know when 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 saddam hussein drove his tanks into q8 it was everybody agreed. You know, you're not allowed to do that. You can't go into another country and, and take other people's land. It's 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 not acceptable. Same when same when Russia goes into Crimea. You know, it's completely everybody understands what's right and wrong about that. But for some reason, when when Israel occupies other people's lands and continually increase uh, and co- continually takes more and more land, that's somehow able to be explained away, or or, or just ducked or just not mentioned. So it seems to be quite hypocritical to me and therefore something that 
something that our country has some responsibility for, uh, and therefore something that I'm interested in. You know, there's lots of there's lots of bad things that happen around the world, and you know, I, you can't get you can't get uh, sort of excited or upset about all of them. But this this one I feel is one that the, the UK has some some responsibility, and UK politicians have some responsibility for at least, if only in a sort of diplomatic and rhetorical sense. And therefore, therefore, it's it's worth talking about in the UK. Can you mention the uh, there? I've seen you a couple of your responses that something to the effect of there is an international consensus that Israel is occupying something to that effect. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, in the in the United Nations General Assembly, I, mean, I think I tweeted this the, the other day. But I mean, if every I mean, I, I might get a few things wrong here. Uh, but every every year or two, there's a there's a vote in the United Nations General Assembly, and it's I, th- I think it's since about the mid seventies, which mm. basically which basically reaffirms the sort of illegitimacy of the occupation uh, in, in in Gaza, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank, and reaffirms the need for for a peaceful settlement. And it, like I said, it's happened dozens of times now in the United Nations General Assembly, and typically. The numbers of votes are about, you know, I mean, how many countries are, are there in the world? There's about 200, something like that. And usually it's about 150, 160 who vote to reaffirm, you know, the the opinion that this is an illegitimate occupation. And then there's about usually about 10 or 15 countries that vote no, I think. And, and I, obviously, I, I bet that they're, the, the list that you gave of all those occupiers, Iraq, Russia, Israel, U.S., I wonder if there are the vetoes, and I know that there's the and and there is the uh, those like five nations all have veto power over pretty much anything that the UN does as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, so this what I'm talking about is the General Assembly, and I think that this, the Security Council would have the the veto the veto type stuff. But so this is just in the General Assembly, and and it, to, I, again, I, I don't know. Oh, is that about how? The, oh, okay, I didn't realize that distinction. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so the, the General Assembly is like every country in the world, um, and then the Security Council, I think, is usually is is about fifteen countries, but there's about five or six permanent members of that that have the veto. So what I'm talking about is a General Assembly vote, and in that sense, you might say that it's toothless. It doesn't really mean much. Mm. And that, yeah. that would probably be correct, you know. It's it's the security council that matters because that's they're the people with the guns, uh, right. I guess. They don't have veto power because they don't they don't care <laughs> about yeah. having veto power. Yeah. Okay. But, but but I suppose you can use the general assembly as an as an expression of you know international opinion, mm-hmm. uh, and and yeah. So in that sense, every couple of years the same vote happens, and hun- that's it about 150, 160 countries vote to reaffirm the fact that this is an it's an illegal occupation and it needs to end. And there's about usually about ten or fifteen countries that vote no, and that obviously includes Israel and the US. And then it's usually, um, you know, Micronesia and Palau, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> countries that have I don't know been paid off by the US to, to vote that mm-hmm. way. I, I don't know the facts to be honest, but um, yeah, but you know, you, you look at that, and most the entire world agrees that this is an occupation. You know, it's 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 it's, it's pretty emphatic, and I'm. Glad to say that the UK, despite the, the the rhetoric that comes out of the politicians, mostly on the question of Israel, do vote do vote yes for that. They do vote to affirm the fact, you know. Um, so that is a good thing, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but you know, the context is that it's arguably a bit of a toothless vote that doesn't mean much in terms of actual action. So you know, um, maybe there isn't necessarily much of a contradiction there between what the UK votes and then what it says. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Okay. Uh, um, 
So it brings a couple things to mind, and then I'm going to close this subject out with one question, mm-hmm. one final question. Um, the first thing it brings to mind is all those all those countries that you said invade others: in Iraq invading Kuwait, Russia invading Crimea, Israel invading mm-hmm. Palestine, U.S. invading you know whoever, everybody. Yeah. They're all they're all clearly the stronger party. Clearly, mm-hmm. by far, like probably orders of magnitude, the stronger yeah. party. And to say that the stronger and to to have the assumption that the obviously stronger party is the victim is just such a suspect assumption to me, like to to be so adamant that that, you know, Israel's just defending itself after, you know, years and years of attack that but they're clearly the stronger party. So it's like. You know, even those, even if you just take those attacks, so-called attacks in isolation, you know, what's the difference in the scale of those things? You know, it's like it, there's so many questions in that. But, but the, the thing for me is also, you know, what 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 options do the different parties have? You know, because um, I think I think you can only hmm. sort of judge judge the the actions of people in terms of you know what what other options do they have and what are the predictable consequences of those actions. And I think, like when Hamas fires a rocket, I don't condone that at all. It's it's reckless. It's criminal. It's you know whatever whatever adjective you want. You know it's it's not it's not constructive. But when they fire a rocket, the, the context is that they've been occupied for fifty years and nothing else has worked, and they're lashing out. They're frustrated. That's what it looks like to me, anyway. But also, what are the predictable consequences of firing that rocket? Well, the you know. The technology is not that great. They don't usually hit anything, so right. the predict yeah. the predictable consequences aren't that great. So the choice to fire that rocket, knowing that it's probably going to do nothing, no harm, in my view, isn't isn't a you know. I think that's the context you have to look at it in. Whereas on the Israeli side, well, when they choose to fire a rocket, they know that probably ten people are going to die. Or, or more, you know, but yet, yet it's fired anyway. Innocent people, that is, you know, civilians, people mm-hmm. that aren't in, aren't aren't involved. Mm-hmm. So there's a distinction there, you know. If you pull the trigger knowing that ten people, ten innocent people are going to die, versus you pulling the trigger knowing that probably no one's going to die, and you probably have to fire twenty of them before any probably would hit anything. There's a mm-hmm. there's a difference there. There's an asymmetry, you know. And what are the what are the predictable consequences of your actions? Well, that's that's it, you know. And if, if the predictable consequences are that Ten innocent people are going to die, and you choose to do it anyway. That's worse than choosing to do it, knowing that or predicting that probably nothing will happen. But the the bigger the bigger question for me is what other options are available. Um, you know, if you've got they no create, other options, they create desperation. They create desperation, and then they punish them for act, acting yeah, desperately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Palestinians have no options, absolutely no options, and they get frustrated and they lash out. You know, I'm, I'm, I mean, that's I'm, I'm being a bit patronising there. You know, again, I'm I'm not. I'm not in the region. I'm not in their shoes, but um, I can see how they have no options and they lash out. You know, Israel, however, you know they claim self-defense, but I don't really see how you can defend yourself against somebody that, that you're aggressing. I mean, you, Israel is formally in the role of aggressor. It's occupying other people's lands and continually taking more land. How can you claim self-defense in that context? It doesn't seem. Um, correct me. The reason, the, the reason for that is that, well, what what is self defence? Uh, you know, self defence doesn't necessarily mean violence. It doesn't necessarily mean that you use violence. It, but it, but it means that 
you know, you take actions to defend yourself from somebody else's violence, right? Now, in, in what situations are you entitled to use violence in self-defense? Well, I would say you're entitled to use violence in self-defense when you have no other options available to you. If you have non-violent options available to you to defend yourself, then you're not entitled to use violence. Now, has Israel got non-violent options uh, at its disposal to, to, to ensure its own security? Of course it has. Um, it can stop doing the aggressive actions that it's doing, such as an occupation and continual land theft. And it, it, speaks to, to, it speaks to England's support and it speaks to the United States support. Meaning, meaning their support is power in, in and of itself. So they, they have that relationship with another powerful yeah. country so they can use, they can utilize that political power in a nonviolent way. Oh, abs- yeah, abs- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, th- I think like if, you know, if I break into your house and I stand on your neck, I'm standing on your neck and you just, you, you don't like that, obviously. So you start punching me in the leg. You know, am I entitled at that point to, to use violence to defend myself? <laughs> no, I don't think so because I've got another option available. I can, <laughs> if I want, if I want to ensure my own, my own safety, I can take my foot off your neck and leave your house. So, when, so as soon as I've got that option open to me, I'm not entitled to to use violence in self-defense, I don't think. Um, and so in, in, that, in that same context, I don't think Israel has a right to self-defense, a right to use violence in self-defense. It's not it's ex- self-defense. It's not it's self-defense. Not, yeah, it, by, by definition, it's not self-defense, I don't think. You know, you can't defend yourself against somebody that you're already aggressing. Um, right. So that's the other. That, that's the massive asymmetry in this. I, I, I believe Israel has an option of it, a non-violent option available to it, mm. uh, yeah, and, and the Palestinian, point. the Palestinians don't. And Israel seems to refuse to use that option. Um, instead, it, it continues its expansion. Um, that's that, that's a great point. And actually, that that cartoon that I mentioned, where where you know missile after missile is going from Palestine to Israel, attacking Israel. And then there's one missile from Israel going back to so-called defend itself, but yeah. then Israel is so-called portrayed by the, the media as you know attacking Palestine. But I wonder if the sizes of those, assuming that the, the, the raw count of those attacks are correct, I wonder if the sizes were proportional, like those, the ones going from Palestine to Israel will be teeny-weeny. I'm, I'm a father. Okay, I said teeny weeny. Uh, those, those rockets coming from Palestine to Israel will be really, really small, and the one going from Israel to Palestine would probably be enormous. You know, like just the proportionality of, of from that point of view. Um, and it, it also it reminds me of one one reminds me of something I think important, and that is there's I think there's some sense of like you know Jewish relatives, it basically excusing Israel. And I think there is some sense of that, that that's the Jewish home and that if it's not defended, there will be no home on earth for Jews. Mm -hmm. And so that's like such a powerful thing. My speculation is that that's such a powerful thing that it basically blinds you to the horror. It blinds you to the negative of that and it allows you, it gives you permission to ignore um, the suffering on the other side of the powerless people that are being sacrificed so that you don't lose something that's very important to you. And it also, and that seems analogous to me of centrists of what, I don't, I don't know if you call them centrists, but we call them centrists of moderate, Mm -hmm. so-called moderate Democrats who are basically privileged in my view. And they're so fearful of Trump that they would not, 
that they don't look at the faults of Biden. They don't look at his faults. They don't look that he's not giving Medicare for all, that he's just giving all this money to Israel, that he's doing, you know, all the the things that he's done in his past, you know, whether personal or whether, you know, political. And it's the same thing. It's that if it it is the excuse of I'm desperate to keep my privilege, I'm desperate to not have Trump. And so that is the excuse to overlook the flaws not only in Biden, but to not look at the suffering of, you know, just millions of powerless people. That, that it, it reminds me of that. That seems a pretty strong connection to me. Um, so I don't know if you have any response to that, but I have, and I'll, I'll just ask my final question as well regarding this. And that is just simply, how did you first become interested? When and how did you first become interested in this particular topic? Um, I think I became interested in foreign policy you know, UK foreign policy, American foreign policy, more, most generally, uh, probably with the Iraq war in 2003. Uh, I would mm, okay. I, I would prob- probably say that until that point, I was a little bit ignorant, a little bit naive about, you know, I suppose I believe, <laughs> believed the, 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 the rhetoric that you still hear today about Britain being, you know, absolutely marvellous and a force <laughs> for good. And I'm sure you hear the same things in, in your country uh, about the US. But... The Iraq War, I think, opened my eyes a little bit to that. Uh, you know, the thing that really opened my eyes was actually to watch. I watched the Michael Moore film Bowling for Columbine. Do you know it? Oh wow! Okay, no, it's been a long time. I did see it. Yeah, well, well, obviously, most that's mostly about the, the you know the, the sort of gun culture in the US. But there's a there's a montage in the middle of it where a montage of US interventions through the 20th century. Uh, and, and you know, Louis Armstrong's "What a Wonderful World" is playing in the background, and uh, of course. it goes through you know uh, overthrowing the, the the democratically elected leader of Iran in like 1953, I think, and sort of then goes through Guatemala, Honduras, Vietnam, of course, Nicaragua, mm-hmm. and all these things that I'd never heard of, and I was like, "What is this? What what are these? Mm-hmm. What are all, what are all these interventions that I've never heard of?" For a start, wow. you know that that made me think, "Wow." That, the world is different to what I thought it was. But the second question that, that that sort of arose in my head was, why don't I know about these things? Why have I got to the mm. age of whatever it was, you know, 25 or something, and I don't, how have I not heard of these things? And so there was, that that was a big, that led me to start asking questions. And this was at the time of the Iraq war. And, uh, and, and I think invariably once you start asking questions about, you know, US and UK foreign policy, you end up at... Um, Israel Palestine mm. and yeah and, and I suppose I just tried to look at it with a fresh pair of ob- objective eyes as much as possible you know you can never you try to be objective you can never be sure that you're being objective but so you yeah. became aware of Israel Palestine particularly around that same time around early 2000s yeah, I mean, in the sense, I mean, I was I was obviously aware of it as a child, you know, because it's never out of the news, uh, but. Being aware from a, I would say, slightly, you know, more informed perspective mm-hmm. about what you know, what is actually happening there, as opposed to what what we get told. And you know, I, th- right. I actually think there's a this whole foreign policy thing. You know, it's. I think there's some the the thing that is interesting for me is uh, there's a link here with MMT. I think in that like, I was just thinking I, the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ahead. Well, I, 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 I think. You know, sometimes sometimes you feel like you get an insight into how something works, or, or, or you know, something clicks, or some dots join in your in your head, that, and you go, right, hang on, I now understand that in a different way. 
but you feel as though the rest of society, or at least maybe not the rest of society, at least the mainstream discourse is completely therefore wrong, you know, uh, it, and that's really interesting. You know, it's really interesting to feel like, you know, everybody's talking about this in the wrong way. Everybody's got this confused, or perhaps there's even a, you know, a, a, a kind of more nefarious agenda that's being steered by some folk in society to make us think something's different. Uh, I don't want to get all sort of conspiratorial or anything, but, uh, you know, <laughs> but is, is, is the mainstream discourse on a particular subject objective, factual, evidence-based, or is it steered or, mis, you know, misinterpreted in some way? And I suppose with the foreign policy stuff, you know, you, you, you know, I, th- I think I think a lot of people go through this when they're when they're coming of age and when they're becoming an adult and they suddenly realise, oh, actually, you know, maybe our country isn't quite always on the right side or isn't, you know, uh, but but learning that or, or feeling like you understand that is a is a bit of an awakening and it's it, it's obviously very very intriguing, you know, intellectually, not not only from a perspective of is what I think I know correct, but also why does everybody else think something different? You know, that I mean that's really really intriguing intellectually. And I think I had the same thing with with MMT. You know, you, you, you the, the world's described in a certain way, and then all of a sudden you look at it in a different way, and you think, well, that kind of makes sense. It seems convincing. Why does everybody else think it's different? And then obviously, mm. you know, your intellectual curiosity is is sort of spurred at that point, and you you know, depending well, depending on your uh, what you're interested in, you then go digging. You then go looking for for for, for more answers. Mm-hmm. And actually, I just had a, a conversation about the reserve currency, petrodollar, and um, it brings up, you know, all of these economic craziness of of if if the U.S. loses the petrodollar, then the economy is going to go. You know, the, the economy will be destroyed. But then that that's the petrodollar is the the reserve currency is inherently linked to fossil fuels, so. So if we stop using fossil fuels, by definition, the reserve currency goes away. So, what it's a, by definition, does that mean that when we get rid of fossil fuels, the U.S. economy has to go, has to be destroyed? Which is just a contradiction because if we don't, we, either way, that means we're going to be destroyed by climate change or by this so-called economic Armageddon. And 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 there's just there's just a lot of crazy economic kind of related topics that people bring up when it comes to the reserve currency. And I think it all I think it all distracts from the reality that it's simply a power game. <clears throat> it's simply a power game. The reserve currency isn't isn't like, you know, the people think, oh, the reserve currency is the money of the world. It requires, you know, everyone to use the dollar. And it's and, you know, MMT shows that it's just an inconvenience. It's just it's just a nagging inconvenience, as I understand it, that you have to transact for oil in it. But it doesn't mean that your currency is linked to it. It doesn't mean that you have to tax on that currency. You know, if people think that it's much more than it is, it, to me, it shows, MMT shows, that all of these economic stuff is just a distraction to the fact that the reserve currency is a tool of the U.S.'s power, that it's mm-hmm. a consequence of the U.S.'s power as opposed to what I think people think of as it's kind of a cause, you know, somehow a cause of yeah. the U.S.'s power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Easy enough. Um, <laughs> all right. So, so why don't we why don't we end that subject and uh, why don't we switch subjects to a much lighter thing? Um, you are a musician. I don't know if you're trained or not, but what is your background with that? Your your pinned tweet, which I'll link to, is you playing piano so what, yeah. what's your experience with music are you trained or what yeah 
Well, uh, yeah, and I suppose I, I, I would be reluctant to describe myself as a musician because it sounds very, um, very sort of formal. But um, I mean, well, I, you're you're not an academic either, but but with your paper, you became one. So, <laughs> I suppose yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, well, I've, I've I've played the piano for well a long time since I was a, t- a teenager. Uh, I also play bass guitar. I used to play bass in 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 a band when I was a kid. Oh wow. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've, I've, it's a hobby though. It's 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 only a hobby. Um, but I play I play piano and bass probably every day. Hmm. Um, but I, I did I did I did do piano lessons when I was a teenager. Got up to about I, I don't know if you have yeah do you have like sort of a grading system in the US? For, grading system for, for piano skills yeah. or what? Yeah yeah yeah. Well yeah anyway, we in 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 our country we have um, yeah you can you can do piano lessons or any musical instrument lessons and you can go through different grades you know do exams and and progress hmm. uh, that way. So I did I, I did a bit of that as a kid you know sort of playing classical stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't really play classical stuff anymore. Um, and I just, it's truly just a hobby. And I suppose I, uh, as you'll see from those, those videos I put on Twitter, I like to play Beatles songs. So did you start, did you start, you said you took lessons pretty early on. Did you take those lessons just as, because like, I'm wondering how uh, a lot of kids take lessons because they're told to. So did yeah. you, did you take a shine to them as a consequence of you were pushed into it? Or I think as a you... teenager, I was getting into music. Uh, my friends were starting to play instruments and like form bands and that sort of thing. And I was kind of, oh, this, you know, I, I, was, I think I was interested for that reason. Um, and we had a piano in the house, so I just started playing around with it and, well, learning Beatles songs <laughs> mm-hmm. because that that seemed to be uh, well. I, I, I like the Beatles. I, like, I always liked the Beatles, and um, it seemed to be a, a good way of a, a good way in. Um, and then I decided to get myself lessons um, as a teenager. So I probably probably did lessons. So yeah, it was my own choice, and um, I wasn't mm-hmm. sort of pushed into it. And that was a sort of mm-hmm. mid to late teenage type age. Uh, did okay. about four or five years of lessons or something like that. Um, and it was classically re- oriented lessons. It was, yeah, yeah. Although, so you chose I, that. You obviously you chose that. Well, I did because I mean I don't don't really think I don't really think there was a there was a way of learning that was not classical. You know, in a in a sort YouTube of YouTube lessons, man. No, no, obviously that was a long yeah, time. YouTube, yeah, <laughs> YouTube, YouTube didn't. I didn't even have the internet, so I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, this is this is like pre-internet. Uh, I know. <laughs> um so yeah i mean these days these days um, i i i often look at youtube these days to sort of um you know figure out different techniques on bass guitar techniques and things like that uh, mm. and it must and i've actually got i've got kids that i you know i, I try i try and teach teach them piano mm. and guitar and that sort of thing and youtube's brilliant for that you know there's all sorts yeah, of really... uh, you know but but when i when i was learning it was it was very much you know going to town buy a book on music theory and sit and read it and try and understand it and 
but it, it was so it was classical because that's really all that was available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say so. Yeah, um, all, all that was all that was available in my in my hometown in terms of formal lessons. But you know, okay. you could go and buy a, you know a, a book with Beatles songs in, or a book with Rolling Stones songs, or uh, you know that sort of thing. So I, I would do a bit of both in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, over the well last couple of decades, I've, I've tried to, I've tried to learn jazz, and this is just mm. teaching myself. This is just, this is just self taught. You know, buying books. I can read. You know, I can read music, and I know music theory. So you know, you can. It's, that it's jazz there. in particular requires music theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's quite complicated harmonically. Um, I, I, f- I find it satisfying just, just, just trying to learn it, you know, trying to learn it. It's just that sort of intellectual curiosity thing, I suppose, you know, hmm. trying to plod through it. That's just satisfying in itself. Um, I wouldn't exactly say that I'm, you know, some sort of virtuoso that would be ready to perform. Do uh, you, but, uh, the, the fact that you, I, I'm a classically trained singer and I, yeah. I don't, I never really listen to, I mean, I, I, enjoy, I can enjoy classical music. I mean, I definitely can enjoy it, but I never mm-hmm. choose to you know, in my car to listen to that. Yeah, I'm um, the same. But, yeah. but, my, but my training as a classically trained singer, like I went to school for it, I find that having that educational basis gives you the ability to do any kind of music. Like it's a, it's mm-hmm. a very, it's a very thorough kind of a training that allows you to branch out to whatever music you want. So if you, for example, if you had a lesson in popular music that might make your options, you know, to branch out to other kinds of music less viable, mm-hmm. I think. So I'm wondering, do you, do you think that your classical training to whatever degree it was gave you that ability to be able to do kind of more kinds of music than you originally expected? Um, I mean, I have, I have struggled to, I, I think with playing the piano, playing classical on piano, you know, it, it, it helps you to, to develop different techniques and that sort of thing. Um, but I would say that at least the, the classical level that I got up to didn't really prepare me to understand jazz harmony. Mm. Mm. And I've also been recently trying to get into like um, Latin jazz, which is like, mm. I, and I think, I, like to, to me, and I, again, I'm saying I'm trying to get into it. I don't mean, I don't mean I'm a comp- accomplished. <laughs> we're, we're, it's, it's- we are we are clear that we are not experts in absolutely yeah, anything. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Um, but but the thing that's interesting, it, just from my perspective, from my reading about Latin jazz, is the rhythms. You know, the rhythms are obviously jazz. Jazz has a lot of syncopation in it. You know, where the the stresses in the rhythms are kind of off the off the beat. Mm-hmm. Um, and Latin jazz, I think, coming from a, I suppose, you know, like I say, I started playing things like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and very you know rock music's very kind of rigid and and conservative in a way uh in in its rhythms and trying to play latin type jazz is uh a lot more difficult it's a lot it's a lot, it's a lot less natural i think just from for me at least and so i would i wouldn't say classical music prepared me for that um hmm. uh, so yeah so there's a couple of things there that i, I would say that classical music didn't pre- didn't prepare me for but the, you know if maybe hmm. if i'd got to a much more advanced level in classical music uh, there would have been enough rigor and en- enough variety of techniques covered that, that it would have would have done, you know. Um, but just from my just from my perspective, from my the, the extent to which I um, learned to play piano classically. But you know, then the, then there's the, the the sort of joy of trying to do it anyway and uh, mm-hmm. seeing whether you succeed or not. But I've got a question for you. Mm-hmm. Then can you, I think did you say you can sight read? I can singing. sight read as singing. I can sight read singing. 
Yeah, yeah so, so, that, so, so I can sight read piano at a very, very slow pace. Yeah, but singing because I can do but, basically one note at a time. But, but but singing is very different to playing piano because you know I, most most musical instruments are kind of digital in in the sense that if you press that button, you'll get that note. You know, mm-hmm. uh, same with playing a clarinet or a saxophone or a trumpet, or whatever. You know, if you do if you do that combination, you'll get that note. Whereas when you're singing, you have to know that that's the correct note. Do you understand what I mean? Not exactly, because when you hit, when you know, you you get guidance from some external source, like an instrument or a pitch pipe, or right, something. because you've got so, an, because you've got an accompaniment. Do you mean? Yeah, I see. Right. Uh, okay. Yes. I, I'm not exactly sure your question. I do not have perfect pitch. I, like some people I know have right. perfect pitch. I absolutely do not. Yeah. I need I need something, but I have I have a I have whatever. I can hold the pitch once I get it. But but if you tell me yeah. to like sing a you know a B flat, I I have no clue. I, I maybe I could guess. Like sometimes I'll have a feeling. I can just kind of but, feel a song that I that I have in my head, and I'll hit the right note, and I'll know it's the right note. But I don't yeah. see that as perfect pitch. Like if you tell me to hit a particular, I mean, I guess if I memorize what what, yeah, well, what I mean, key that song was in, I could do it. But yeah. I don't have perfect pitch by any means. So no, I'm not exactly sure what your question is. But well, there's perfect pitch, but then there's also relative pitch. So you might not be able to sing a B flat just cold. You might have to have some guidance as to where B flat is. But once you've no B flat, can you play a G above that, like a sixth, a sixth yeah. above yeah, it? Yeah, no, I'm totally good with that. Can, yeah. can, can you just can you just sing that G? Uh, for me to play that G on a piano is dead easy. I know I know where the G button is. Of course, yeah, button the G the G key. Uh, but 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 actually singing that note, knowing knowing what the what the interval of a sixth is, or a seventh, or a minor seventh, or a third, um, that's a bit more difficult when you're doing it with your voice because you literally have to produce that interval yourself. Whereas that's when true, you've got but, an... but you, but but I I I think of it as kind of like on a piano though. When I yeah. sing it, I when I think of music, I mean, actually, when I was in school, I I ignored music theory. I just got through right. it, and I total I so regret it. I so regret it. Like kind of what you were saying about Latin jazz. My, <laughs> if I had an extra, if I had, you know, another lifetime, I would, I would be arranging acapella music. I really enjoy doing right. that. Like six part acapella music. And I, I can arrange, I think pretty decent stuff. I have arranged pretty decent stuff, but uh, there's a group called take six. Uh, they're an, uh, they're a very religious acapella group. And, and I mean, they're, they, to them, I think they would say that religion is more important than music, that music is a tool for religion for them. I'm not, right. you know, I don't, I don't, I like them just because their music is unbelievably complicated. I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of a lazy way of saying it. But one of the things I like about them is that their, their, their harmony is incredibly complicated and it's, they're, they're all like doctorates in music theory or at least, right. you know, substantial amount of them. And when I try and, and produce that kind of stuff, I can hear it, but I cannot put it to the paper. But when I, right. when I think of, but, but when I think of music theory, of chords and harmony and, and intervals, I think of the piano. I think of the piano right. in the terms of like if you tell me to sing a minor six, I think of it uh, on a piano. So I can jump. I can do a minor six, no problem, like an interval or whatever it is, or any interval you tell me, I can probably mm-hmm. do pretty easily. But I think of it in the context of a piano, and in yeah. my head, I'm doing what you do. And if you simply yeah. build up from like if you have a starting note, C, middle C, and you say a minor six, you know, you can hit that key and that's easy, but you don't learn the interval. The learning the interval is is to get the relationship from C to that. So you just simply play up to it. 
So in right. my mind, right. I play up to it as opposed right. to jump just by pressing so you're going, the button. You're, you're going through the scale in your head. I'm going. I go through the scale in my head, and yeah, I've just yeah. done that so many times that I can I can do that very quickly and, right. and yeah, automatically. Yeah. So I really don't see it as that much different. It's just I've simply practiced going up yeah, from yeah. the bottom to the top of the interval, and I'm just so used to doing it that 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 comes pretty quickly to me. And would you be able, would you would you be able to do that with sort of um, the, the the accidentals or the, the what would we call the non diatonic tones like that you know a flattened or a sharpened um yeah if you, if you give me no. a starting note and then you give me any any other note any, any I mean, other there's, only, tw- there's yeah. only only there's only 12 of them so yeah. it's not like yeah. you know yeah. I, but but yes no and the, a minor six is a flat six you know so yeah. that's that's kind of the thing but yes yes yeah but but i no, think but, it I, mean, is a piano. I think i think i think that's an, an amazing skill I, I don't think i could do that uh, you know if i put enough time into it i, I think i could but um, you know the idea that you have to actually understand the interval and then produce that note yourself, uh, and it's a bit like playing. You know, on a violin, you know, you need to know that you're fa- because there are no frets on the like a guitar. You need mm, to be able to find yeah, the note. Sure. You need you need to be able to find the note and know and yeah, analog know, versus know, digital. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You need to be able to find the note and know that it's the correct the correct pitch. You can't really go wrong on the piano or the clarinet because as long as you do the right combination of fingers or whatever, you've got the you know you've got the right note. Um, that doesn't mean it's easy, but um, but uh, yeah, I, I do admire people that can produce the right note and know it's the right note, uh, like either on a violin or with their voice. Um, so, that's cool. Yeah. That, that's cool. And I, but it, yeah, I I think it's simpler than than. I, Maybe, uh, I think yeah. to to everyone. I think I mean that's the way I think about it. But I think I think in any to anyone they have some kind of similar internal, you know, mm-hmm. system of doing that as well. Like uh, I've been learning the guitar for the past six months, and um, I I choose to learn a lot fewer songs and learn them well as opposed to I I can't stand strumming. Um, right. And actually, actually, well, I'll have a final question after this for regarding music. But yeah. but um, so I've learned by YouTube people. And I'll just say, I, I, Marty Music has been amazing. He's he was been like the real kind of the guy who started me off. And now I've I've uh, branched out to some other people. There's a guy sh- called sh- his channel is called Shut Up and Play, and he's right. he he's uh, he I it seems that he prides himself on getting it accurate to the original recording. And so now I'm going back to Marty Music, and I'm seeing a couple of things. Not not a lot. I mean, morning music is amazing. I, but but a couple of the songs that now I'm doing the shut up and play version, where it's clearly the more accurate version. Right. And now I and uh, what the hell was my point? I don't remember. But anyway, uh, so so I I would rather I don't I would rather choose a, a fewer amount of songs and play them well than I I, I really don't like just I can do chords no problem like the basic chords. Yeah. But it doesn't feel musical to me. Like I would like, I want to play a full song and be able to sing with it, or someone else to be able to sing with it. And just strumming chords just does not feel musical to me. But if you're so, talking about if you're talking about somebody else um, singing along with you, so are you are you interested in playing an accompaniment, but just not strumming chords, a, a, a more a more elaborate form of accompaniment? I, I I see a big difference. Like even on the piano, I can play if you give me you know, F sharp minor seventh, whatever, you know, I, I can do those. If you, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the guitar tabs on top of a musical on top of sheet music, it'll say F sharp minor seventh or whatever, yeah. B, B flat major seven or whatever. I can do those. No problem. But 
but I, you know, you just go boink and hit that mm-hmm. chord. And yeah, I can hit those chords. I can, I can hit them and I can hit them in beat, but it doesn't feel like a song to me. So right. yeah, I can accompany, I can accompany, you know, any Beatles song if I have the tabs, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel musical to me. And that, and that's the equivalent on the guitar. It just, yeah, I can accompany on very basic chords, but it does not feel musical to me. So I would rather pick like the first song that I learned the full, the whole way through was Blackbird. And in fact, I I learned it in a slightly not correct way, which I just realized now by looking at this newer version, but I don't care because it is just, I can play Blackbird. I mean, it's, it's relatively simple among, you know, guitar music. It's only three strings Mm -hmm. and it's two patterns and, and that's that, but I can play the whole song and I can play it reasonably close to Paul McCartney. And now I know the, I believe the much closer to version to him. And that just feels more musical to me. Um, for whatever reason, some people like strumming and I I don't know, but, uh, my, so my final question to you would be, what are the, do you follow in particular? Have you learned things from people on YouTube? I wonder if some of the same teachers on YouTube, I know one in particular, Eric Blackman music, uh, he teaches uh, guitar and bass plus piano and some other things too. Um, so I, I wonder uh, just some of the YouTube or other you know major kind of uh, people that have influenced you with bass guitar and and I guess piano uh, too. There is um, uh, uh, yeah yeah there's a there's a really good um, it's it's mostly about music theory really and it's called mm. David. David Bennett piano. I don't know if you heard of it. So no. a British guy, a British guy, quite a young guy, but he talks about. Um, he mostly talks about kind of rock and pop music, but um, from a perspective of music theory. Uh, and I found that I found that uh, really, I suppose, um, really, really, really interesting, quite entertaining. It's really, really because you know, I think, I think you know, music theory can be quite complicated. And but if you can, if you can tie if you can tie the concepts to, you know, sort of well-known songs and um, a context that you're already interested in, you know, like rock or pop music, then uh, yeah, it usually helps, usually helps in my view to, um, to understand complicated concepts. You know, if you can, mm-hmm. if you can relate it to something that somebody's interested in already or, or something that's familiar. So that's David Bennett piano. Um, uh, but that's more for I, theory as opposed to I, like, I would you, say you don't go he, into he, teaching a particular song. You, you go into, to learn, kind of just like the theoretical background yeah, and then yeah. you apply he, that he, differently. He is a pianist and he does, um, he, he does, he does have some, some videos where he's playing pieces and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the theoretical stuff's really good. But apart from that, I, I haven't really, cause I, I think I've, I've been playing piano for so long and I'm kind of just, uh, in the habit of, you know, getting books, learning, teaching myself, that sort of thing. I probably haven't really used YouTube for piano, but I have used YouTube for bass. Um, mm-hmm. Um, so a, I'll a, recommend Eric Blackman music to you. Right? It's not like I okay. know many. It's like, not, not like I know many, but he's the one that I've come across that I've learned a couple of songs from. Um, actually, I learned I learned one just unbelievably thrilling song, uh, Luther Vandross, uh, Never never Too Much. Oh, yeah. It's a, a guitar song. Oh, my gosh. I can play that. I can play it the real version because it's a, it's a relatively uh, – minimalist is the wrong word but it's not very complicated right and i can I just he taught me that song that's just amazing um so he also teach has uh bass lessons as well all right eric that's Black, okay that, eric, that's, Mc, that's, eric Blackman yeah. music 
Yeah, yeah, that's worth looking at then. Um, I'll, I'll take a look. Um, yeah, there's a couple. Of, I mean, there's a yeah, there's 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 one channel called Scott's Bass Lessons that I, that I end up landing on. Again, a British guy. He sounds. I think he might be from Yorkshire or somewhere like that. Um, okay. He's he's pretty good for bass, and I just uh, keep landing on on his stuff whenever I've got a question about bit, sort of bass technique, all that sort of thing. But um, and the other one is um, who's, who's there's an American guy who you have, you have, what's it called? Is it Steve Beato? Do you know him? Oh, I I just saw my first video by him. He was just simply yeah. my oh, Rick favorite. Beato. Rick, Rick, Beato. Rick Beato. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. I just saw my. I happened to see my first video by him, and it was just simply the twenty best. Actually, it's interesting you bring that up. The twenty <laughs> most exciting or the twenty best openings to acoustic guitar songs yeah to acoustic guitar songs like really specific and uh i I actually the the song i'm learning currently is just exhilarating exhilarating i can do it maybe 40 percent um i'm maybe approaching 55 percent now but i can do it i can do it uh salisbury hill by peter gabriel Okay. Yeah. Just exhilarating, exhilarating yeah. song, and and <laughs> I and I I discovered. I mean, I knew the song, but I never thought of it from a guitar point of view until I until I heard it on that Rick Beato video. Yeah, he's he's really good. I think. I mean, his his videos are absolutely excellent, and I, I think he does a lot of those things, like the yeah the, the, the greatest keyboard intro, the greatest bass solo, and stuff like that. You know, the twenty best. You know, mm-hmm. loads loads, anyway, loads of those things. Everything. Yeah, but he he also he obviously knows. He's obviously very good on many, many different instruments. He also knows and music theory. Too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He also knows music, music theory, but mm. he, but if it's also like sort of I don't know, rock rock history as well. You know, it's like um, it's like it, he can touch every every kind of aspect. So yeah, it, it's it's difficult. It's difficult to get bored looking at his videos. He's he's, he's quite charismatic as well. Yeah, so mm. I quite um, I quite enjoy looking at his stuff. Uh, but yeah. Hmm. Um, okay, well, I'll just give a, a final, uh, um, just an aside that that this kind of all reminds me of, and then then we'll switch subjects to our our intended subject. But this is a good yeah. this is a good exactly an hour, so <laughs> it works out well. Um, hold on. Um, oh, here it is. Okay, so one of the songs I learned, and it took me a long time. Uh, it is way beyond my what I should try. You know, like I'm I'm just. T- too ambitious, but that's kind of what I want. Um, uh, classical Gas, you familiar with that? No. By Paul Mason. It's like a 1968 guitar song, and he right. has an orchestra backing him up. Okay. Spectacular. Just spectacular. And I learned that first half of the song at 40% speed. 40% mm-hmm. speed. I can do it. I can play half of the song at 40% speed if you're really kind of forgiving. And it's you know very finger-picking, finger finger-style, very complicated, very, you know, I mean... I don't know the theory, but it's clearly very complicated harmonies and just, I, you know, just really exciting that I can do that. And, uh, and actually, you know, I learned it from these YouTube guys. Uh, this one was guitar 360 something that I learned it from. Um, but, uh, I just saw a video of Tommy Emmanuel. He's a guitarist, right? Tommy Emmanuel. I'll, I'll put the, actually probably a little, put a little audio in here. Um, but I'll link to it. Tommy Emanuel playing his version of classical gas. Right. It is insane. I mean, <laughs> this guy, it's like maybe six lifetimes from now, I could maybe get a quarter of it. Like, like actually, actually, if you, if you wouldn't, 
if you're interested, just take like a minute. I'll, I'll send you the link to to just hear just how unreal <laughs> it's four it's four and a half minutes long. Um, but if you're interested, just to, just to, just to see the, the the depth of 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 what this is, I'll, I'll send yeah, you a link sounds, just to just, just sounds, to see like a, just to hear like a minute. Yeah. Of it and, the the, right. the equivalent that I've um, had with that is if you heard of a guy called Jacob Collier. Mm, name sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, just check check him out. He's a, a British guy. He's another young guy. Um, okay, and he 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 is absolutely incredible. He he produces <sighs> he produces these versions of songs with uh, I don't know it, what looks like a hundred part harmony. Uh, I actually first saw Jacob Collier describing um, a bit of music theory. And I didn't know who he was, so I just thought he was like some, you know, you know, like a young student or something who wanted to make a YouTube video. But then Herbie Hancock sitting next to him. <laughs> I'm mm. like, all right, all right. Uh, so he's talking to Herbie Hancock about this, 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 <laughs> this, this, this concept. Hmm. And, and it was months later that I, I stumbled upon him again, and I was like, I was just mm. absolutely, uh, just blown away. I think I can't remember, can't remember what this, some like Christmas song, Christmas Carol, or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And like he produces these songs, uh, like like I say, there must be, there must be dozens of different harmonic parts, and it's all you know, all voice. Um, mm. So that, you know that might interest you. But the harmony That's is cool. the, the harmony is um, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's you know it's not it's not normal sort of diatonic harmony. It's I think he uses like notes in between notes and things like that, and it, it's, mm, it's it's, great. it's way, great. way beyond way beyond anything I can get my head around. But it's absolutely. Well, if you if you could find a link to that, please, yeah. please send that. I'll add it to the notes. Um, so I put put I put the link in the chat. Unfortunately, it does some stupid HTML with it, so you're going to have to copy the link from the middle. Right. Um, but uh, just listen to like the first minute of of this video. Uh, and and I, actually, let me give a little <laughs> let me give a little context. So I, I played my you know my wife my my. My wife is completely numb to my playing, and and I, I don't play. I didn't play this particular song with a pick, so it wasn't very loud. So I can play while she's sleeping. I can just practice in my bedroom while she's sleeping, and she's totally fine with it. So she's, you know, she hears me play from the, you know, practicing for days before it even sounds like even a hint of music. And so, I, you know, I was like a good two, three weeks before I finally, you know, got you know, mm-hmm. something that it felt like a song. So classical gas. So I was playing classical gas. And so I played, I said, I, Sherry, I want to show you something, but first I want to play you my version. And so I played her, my version. She's heard it a million times. She's like, okay. And then I played this version. And, <laughs> and so, and then she, so we watched this version together yesterday. So just, just take a listen to the first minute. And then, and then I just, I just want you to hear it. And then we'll switch to MMT. Okay. I think it's coming on now.
that's uh, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty pretty special, isn't it? It's 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 insane, and that's nothing compared to the last three minutes. It's it's just right. It's it's I, I just I can't even fathom. And there's there's a, there's a moment near like I'm guessing maybe two thirds through, where he actually he like rings out a loud note, and then he reaches. I'm not sure if he reaches for one of the tuners, or if he physically bends the the neck, but whatever he does. Right. A whole, he stops playing. He, he does a really, you know, rings out a really loud chord, and then he grabs the guitar bass and the the bass of the guitar, and then mm-hmm. he grabs the top of the guitar. I don't know if it's the tuner, and he does something that the whole chord just goes and it just yeah. it goes down and then up, and then he just continues at high speed. It's just I, I just can't believe it. So I just discovered this, and I can play the you know the the embryonic version of, of this and, so. and, and do you play do you play on an acoustic guitar is the original an acoustic yeah. guitar i didn't hear the end of what you said but i do is, play is, on is, is the original song acoustic i think so I think yeah so. yeah because that's yeah. i mean I've, I've, I'm, I'm not a guitarist really i've, I've I, you know i can play well you can relate I mean, you, you can you can you can very closely relate with with the bass i mean there's a there's a very oh, yeah, close yeah, relationship yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, and I, I, I can't, um, I can't imagine being able to do something so intricate on on a guitar because obviously the bass, the bass has a longer neck, and the, the strings are wider, and the string spacing is wider. And you watch this, uh, you know, the intricacy with which it's played on a on a normal size guitar, and also an acoustic guitar, which you know they're, they're much harder to play than electric guitars. I think you know, in, in mm. terms of well, in terms of hurting your fingers and having to press down harder and that sort of thing. So yeah, I can't. I can't I never played an electric. I never played an electric. Right. Oh well, it's a lot easier, much easier to play. Um, hmm. But but I, I I think I think again I'm not I'm not I'm not the guitarist. I'm not I'm not an authority on guitar. <laughs> but I, I imagine I imagine I I have owned a guitar before and I have played played guitars before and uh, I think learning on an acoustic is probably better because if you learn if you learn on an electric, you possibly find it difficult to switch to an acoustic because it would just yeah, it's interesting. It would just tear your fingers apart. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. I actually, I actually, uh, all right, we, we got to get to MMT, but I don't care. I mean, I mean, honestly, I, I'm totally fine with this. I really like actually kind of that we're doing this because, you know, I, my podcast is, is half, I consider kind of it half of my podcast to be about MMTers, not necessarily, you know, and right. the other half yeah, to be about MMT. So I, I just want to, I don't know if, you know, you're kind of surprised at what, you know, what this has <laughs> turned out to be, but. I, no, I'm totally, okay. I like, I kind of like this because, you know, it's getting to know MMTers, which provides context for, you know, the MMT itself. But anyway, um, uh, a, a few things you just made me think of. Um, number one, the, he's hardly looking at the guitar, this guy. And when I play my, my, my embryonic version, my nose is basically against the strings. I like, I have to stare at what I'm doing, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I, I wonder. I have a feeling that you probably are the same. I'm going to guess that you're the same way. But when I when I think of the the notes and the and the chords on a guitar, I still have a piano in my head. I kind of take the piano chord and and bend it over itself onto the shape of the strings. That's that's how I yeah. think of the notes and and the theory uh, of the guitar itself. So I kind of think of I take the piano and bend it in half, uh, you know, multiple times, and uh-huh. that's how yeah, I yeah. think. That's yeah. how I think of 
you know the strings themselves so i always have the piano the piano is like is the is the basis of of kind of music and theory and notes for me so yeah I'm, i would say i'm the same yeah um i think because i suppose the notes are set out in a kind of just a linear fashion on the piano aren't they um they're the kind of they just all go in one direction um whereas with the you're right with, with the guitar they kind of you have to sort of loop back on yourself when you go to a to the next string uh, so it's mm-hmm. it's less intuitive. Of course, you can you can you can imagine the the fretboard in. You, you suppose you can imagine sort of hand shapes and things like that to to spell out the chords and the and the, and the scales. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I have a much. I mean, I'm sure people that are much more proficient on on guitar or bass kind of have the whole fretboard mapped in their head. But uh, I don't. Yes. Um, it's yeah. Yeah. I, I it's, think I'm it's probably doing a similar thing to you. Yeah. 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 It's the it's the physical shapes. That's one thing. But there's also there's also an element of 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 mapping it back to the piano. But um, yeah, and actually, to, to so I'll make a final. This is I think a good MMT transition. I just realized I, I, I'm I'm struggling with Soulsbury Hill, you know, in a, you know the way that I have to. It's not you know it's, it's an appropriate struggle. Um, but the the very first note or the very first chord is the hardest part for me. Um, just the very very first thing is the hardest part in the whole song and getting to it quickly i mean that's that's all what guitar is about is just you know getting to the next shape quickly and Mm -hmm. being able to hit it crisply cleanly yeah cleanly you know without you know you know whatever you call it static or ringing or whatever it is to be able to hit it cleanly is is very hard and and i just realized yesterday and this is a it mmt kind of made me think of this that both sides of the equation where i was trying to bend my hand to like the very first there's just like three notes at the beginning just just three straight notes it's not chords and then it's a chord and it's a hammer on too so it's it's a chord and then it immediately changes because you hammer your finger you hammer two fingers on to do you know two different notes and it's a very awkward position and so i was you know doing the first two notes and then i have to move my hand into an awkward shape really really quickly mm-hmm. and that, and i was finding it very difficult and then i actually started thinking of mmt both sides of the equation and i was like i can move the guitar as well i can start the guitar in a position in a a little bit higher diagonal position so i don't have to bend my arm so right. so oddly and and that actually you know in my mind anyway it felt like you know, MMT, both sides of the equation, that I'm not the only thing that exists here. The guitar can also be manipulated as well. So right. anyway, that's my very weak segue yeah. into MMT. So, <laughs> um, um, all right. So, so that was a lot more than I expected. And I, I, I kind of enjoyed that. Um, yeah, me too. Um, okay. So, so let's start the, let's start our interview for the, <laughs> after an hour. Um, uh, let me ask you the, the first question that I normally ask people, and you, you've obviously introduced yourself. But what I what I normally ask people is, please introduce yourself, and then please describe your life and thinking before you discovered MMT. And for some people, and for me, that means also economics. That you just you know, were before you had an awareness of MMT, or before you had an awareness of uh, MMT and economics. So. Please. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think my understanding of economics was, um, well, 
non-existent um, probably before the, the global financial crisis. You know, it's, pro- it's probably a bit of a cliche, I imagine, that lots of people you talk to, I imagine, got motivated when the global financial crisis happened. Um, before that, um, you know, the, the, probably the, as we discussed earlier on, the five years before the financial crisis hit, you know, I was definitely getting more attuned to p- politics, uh, foreign policy and that sort of thing. You know, Thank you.
Today I talk with 10th year MMT activist Andy Berkeley. Andy has a PhD in marine sedimentology and is a marine scientist and oceanographer by trade. He's also the co-author of the 2020 paper, An Accounting Model of the UK Exchequer, which is published by the Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. This is part one of a two-part episode, but it's also part two of a larger seven-part series with all three co-authors, first individually and on a personal level, and then ending with a joint interview with all three where we discuss the paper in depth. In today's episode, Andy and I discuss some decidedly non-economic topics. For the first half of part one, we talk about the now half-century-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Since the 1970s, the UN General Assembly has regularly and overwhelmingly voted to affirm the fact that Israel is illegally occupying Palestine. This, in addition to the fact that Israel is clearly the stronger party by orders of magnitude, calls into question the popular notion and official narrative that Israel is nothing more than a passive and long-suffering, dainty little flower of a victim. On the other side of this narrative is Palestine, serving the role of the melodramatic supervillain, seemingly doing nothing but perpetually alternating between launching missiles at Israel and twirling their overly long mustache. I'm a Jew, but not religious. I grew up in a family, however, that subscribed strongly to exactly these ideas, that Israel is 100% the victim and Palestine 100% the bad guy. Questioning Israel and its leaders in any way is essentially treated by some as an act of betrayal. My speculation is that Israel is seen by many Jews as the only home on earth for the Jewish people. This is such a powerful thing that it justifies excusing the behavior of the Israeli leadership and ignoring the suffering caused in service of preserving that home. In any relationship, the idea that one party is 100% in the right and the other 100% in the wrong is the stuff of cartoons, not reality. Further, the assertion that the by far stronger party is the victim, when that so-called victim has been occupying the territory of its so-called aggressor for 50 years, is a highly suspect one in my view. In the second half of part one, Andy and I greatly lightened the mood with another non-economic topic, this time music. I'm a classically trained singer and for the past six months I've been learning guitar. Andy has played piano and bass guitar for most of his life, and we have a fun and kind of exciting conversation about lots of varied topics. How to sight read and learning about music theory, how we were trained, the styles in which we were trained versus those we choose to listen to, the many YouTube teachers who have influenced us, and more. You'll find a few samples of our playing in today's episode, and we both thank you for being forgiving and understanding while listening. At the very beginning of today's episode, you heard a brief sample of Andy's piano and bass playing. You'll find the entire piece along with another after the end of today's closing music. You'll also find links to several musicians and songs we mention in the show notes. Next week in part two, Andy describes his life before knowing about MMT and how he discovered it from an actual stranger on a train. Someone he now knows well, Chris Cook, overheard Andy's conversation and interrupted and interjected the fateful words, banks don't lend deposits and governments don't spend taxes. But that's next week. For now, here's part one of my conversation with Andy Berkeley. Enjoy. <laughs> 